wise doctor is someone who reads each patient and figures out what needs to be said, how it needs to be said, so that you can pursue the goal of uh, curing disease uh, and easing suffering. So welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with uh, Charles Cassidy and Igor Crossman. Uh, today we'll be talking about wisdom at work. And so over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science with respect to this topic. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. Uh, you've been great. Please continue rating us on iTunes and other devices that you use. And I would like to dive right in. Today, we have a special guest. We have uh, Barry Schwartz, who is a visiting professor at the Berkeley Haas School of Business and an emeritus professor of psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Uh, Barry, oh, we are so delighted to have you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm honored. It's an important topic. So Barry's uh, research uh, concerns morality, decision-making, interrelationships between science and society, and he has spoken about all sorts of wisdom-related themes, uh, both on uh, TED Talks as well as in uh, general media. He has multiple books on this topic, which, which you should check out if you're interested. And I think, Charles, you want to start with some pressing questions that you collected when you read some of Barry's work. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to, um, when we talk about work, I often think about this idea, when, when you were a kid, that was the question <laughs> that adults would ask you all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up? So I was wondering to both of you, actually, like, how closely does what you do now uh, match what that little sort of eight-year-old boy said that, you know, in response to that question? Are you doing what you said you would do when you grow up? Well, when I was eight, my plan was to play center field for the New York Yankees. And that's still possible. There's still time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's still time. Yeah, never say never. But, uh you know, that that did not work out. And then my plan was to become a writer. Uh -huh. And that didn't work out, except it turned out that's what I became. Right. Uh, since most of the work I've done for the last 25 years has really been directed at uh, popular audiences rather than professional colleagues. So I am a writer, but not the kind of writer I imagined I would be when I was a kid. Actually, for a while, I was going to be a sports writer for newspapers huh. or magazines. Once it became clear I was not going to be a center fielder for the New York Yankees, I <laughs> I'd write about the people who were. Yeah, um, it's good to have a backup that, plan. It is good to have a, a slightly more realistic backup plan. Yeah. What about you, Igor? I don't even remember what I wanted to be when I was eight, to be honest. Um, Social psychologist? Maybe, no, definitely not. I mean, I think I maybe me. I, I remember I was drawing houses, uh -huh. and I think I either want to be an architect or uh, a designer of some sort. Uh, I was drawing some kind of fancy houses. That's one thing that I remember. Uh, of course, as every post-Soviet mm. child in Eastern Europe, I want to be a cosmonaut first. Nice. Uh, that I do remember. Uh, so you two or, or have aimed, both aimed very high in that. I yeah. like that. You know. Well, literally, literally yeah. very high. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was thinking about this, see, I'm much more modest. My um, my hope was to be a stuntman. That's what I wanted to be. And I think oh, I that's watched more modest? a lot of sort of Burt Reynolds films. Um, and he was he seemed quite cool. And, he, you know, this. so, you know, but I obviously I was aiming a little, a little low compared to you guys. So, so Barry, in the work that you've done, if they said one day, sorry, there's no funding for this anymore. And you weren't paid because you obviously do work you care about. So I suppose how much what percentage of your salary would you would you have still worked for? You know, how how low would they have to cut it for you to say, I'm getting enough from this that I do it anyway? 
So I've thought a great deal about this question uh, since I, I think actually money is the worst reason to be working. Right. Uh, <laughs> and on the other hand, people have to make a living. So I think for, in my own mind, it's quite separate. There is the question, how much money does it take to live a decent life? And how much money would it take for you to do the work you do? The answer to the second question is zero. I would do, in fact, now I'm retired, so mostly retired. So, in fact, the work I do, I do for nothing, for love. Mm -hmm. But for, you know, for most of my life, I had to make a living. Academics make a decent salary, but they hardly can live in the lap of luxury. It always seemed to me that it was adequate to meet my family's needs. And I never gave a thought to my salary. I never worried about whether I was being paid more or less than people at major research universities or more or less than my colleagues, because that really had nothing to do with why I, uh, I was doing what I was doing. So I would say adequate to live and work you love to do. So if you found out, say, for example, that the person in the next office was getting double, but you were still getting, you know, you're getting what you're getting, does that have an effect? Or do you, do you, do you think that would persevere that kind of, kind of idea? That well, you know, the, so that this raises the problem, because in the society I live in, and I guess you guys live in too, what you get paid is a measure of, of how much people value what you do, whether you like it or not. So mm -hmm. I, I suspect that if I found out that the guy in the office next to me was making much more than I was, I'd be pissed. <laughs> Especially uh, if he was a writer for about six yeah. I'd feel <laughs> underappreciated, you know. Um, I'd, I'd start wondering about whether the people who ran my institution had the right priorities. So I could see it generating a whole yeah. cascade of considerations that would uh, change my attitude toward my work, despite the fact that it really wasn't about the money. It was yeah. more about what the money signaled, I would say. So, so some of the listeners may wonder just at this point, so you're talking about economic incentives. So do you suggest to replace them with some kind of social incentives to just focus more on those? I'm an Aristotelian. I think that most of the activities people engage in have their own appropriate ends, or Aristotle mm -hmm. would say telos. And so, you know, as a as a scientist, it is to discover the truth in whatever domain you operate. As a teacher, it's to awaken young minds. And so the the right reason to be doing these things has to do with the things you're doing. Uh, that said, there are other kinds of, uh, of consequences that matter to people. And get you know be getting approval from society matters uh, mm -hmm. i think i think people get uh, led astray when they're pursuing approval rather than the telos of the activity mm -hmm. because sometimes they're getting approval for the wrong reasons for example increasingly student course evaluations seem to matter at universities to the success of faculty Right. Student course evaluations are not measures of how effectively people are teaching. They're measures of how entertaining teachers are. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, get good course, I get good course evaluations. So this is yeah. not sour grapes. But yes, it's customer satisfaction. So you could easily imagine that if you were, you know, you started out wanting to awaken young minds um, and then you started caring a lot about social approval, the way you teach would change and you'd start doing more and more of the things that students liked and less and less of the things that you think the students needed. So it, it can misfire just as much as, uh, you know, doing it for a bonus or a promotion can misfire. Every consequence has two different kinds of effects. 
one of them is essential and the other one can often be destructive. When you get a bonus or a high teacher evaluation or whatever sign of approval, it's providing feedback. It's not clear to me how we can ever get better at what we do without feedback. You know, sometimes the feedback comes directly and automatically, like when you're trying to, um, you're putting together a model airplane and it doesn't fly and that's pretty good feedback that you've done something wrong. But, But sometimes the feedback isn't so direct. So you get feedback and that helps you, you know, modify what you do and and progressively gradually get better at it. And when you get a bonus, it's essentially saying, good job, keep it, keep it up. And it's also giving you something you want. The problem is it's the something you want part, not the informative side of of, uh, consequences, but the hedonic side that often Mm -hmm. leads people astray. And I don't know how you can separate them. We care about social approval. We want teachers to get feedback. It's preposterous to imagine that you somehow know automatically because you've learned something that you now know how to teach it. So feedback is critical. But once things start to depend on that feedback, once, you know, whether you get tenure, whether you get a sabbatical, whether you get a raise depends on that feedback. Well, now all of a sudden, it's not merely informative, it's also hedonic, and that leads people, I think, to distort what they do. And it's really hard, I think, to provide right. good feedback without bringing along with it these destructive, potentially destructive effects. Yeah, Does that also, make sense? Yeah, totally. And, and so um, I'm a maths teacher, so we, we you know, get observed you know, on a fairly regular basis. Um, and there was this kind of discussion amongst the staff saying, you, you need to be clearer about what a good lesson looks like. Because, you know, some assessors will have a completely different understanding of a good lesson than someone else. So they then came up with sort of a short list of what a good lesson looks like. And then it just kind of becomes a little farcical because you just make sure you hit everything on that list. And then Mm -hmm. it's done. And you're like, well, mm." it's tricky. You can understand why the teachers wanted to have some consistency in the way they were being assessed. But then really what you need is probably someone to come in and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what a good lesson looks like. Just teach. And I will then sort of try and you know, right. give you some helpful, constructive feedback. But it, it's tricky because, you know, if you're going to be assessed by it, like you say, and if your appraisal system is going to feed into your salary, then you become, you know, quite demanding and that you want to know what the metric is. And then it all gets quite narrow. And that's, that's the second side of the problem. You know, the reason for insisting on a metric or a checklist is that you want to be fair yeah. or you want you want to be immune to criticism that you may be biased in yeah. some way or arbitrary. Yeah. But cynically, you would say that that's the it's that second part, want to be immune to the criticism. If somebody comes back to you in yeah. the lawsuit, yeah. that you can <laughs> say, oh, but actually we have all this documentation. We are fair. We exactly so. <laughs> exactly so. But notice that there would be, I think, much less concern about this if the only point of the evaluation was to give you feedback to help you get better. Then you could then you could do, you know, you could go into the class and say, start teaching, and then we'll talk about it after the class is over. And no one will be so worried about whether your approach to evaluating me was the same as your approach to evaluating Igor, because what you were trying to do is make each of us better and that might mean different things for different teachers. So you're com- you completely, yeah, you untether it from any sort of... You untether it, yeah. but, when, 
but when promotion and salary and all these other things are riding on your valuation, you can't get away with this, as it were, individualized mode of assessment anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the result, I think, since I don't think template models work, yeah. because what's a, a weakness in one teacher is a strength in another. You're forced into these template models. And as I've said, yeah. in talking about wisdom, you know, wisdom, uh, rules protect us from catastrophe and they guarantee mediocrity. And I don't think that's a good. I don't think that's a good result in the uh, sort of inspection process in the school system. What yep. they're what they're doing is just trying to make sure that nothing terrible is happening. Um, but people are so yep. sort of guided towards making sure that nothing terrible is happening that there, there's no sort of capacity left for actually doing anything sort of noble or great or or new. Um, so it sort of actually just squashes everything into a sort of narrow band. Um, it does. And I think people don't realize what, how much they're giving up. I yeah. think the benefits of standardization are kind of obvious and the price is less obvious, but I think really substantial and in some cases close to catastrophic. So this was actually a perfect segue into the first theme that we want to kick off with, like this, uh, related to the title of our podcast. Uh, Barry already brought up the term wisdom, and you talked quite a bit about uh, practical wisdom in your writing and uh, in your TED Talks. So can you define for us what is practical wisdom? Well, yeah, uh, sort of. Uh, I don't think our <laughs> listeners are going to be terribly satisfied with this. You know, I, my, our, my, my collaborator, Kenneth Sharp, and I, Again, taking very much taking Aristotle's lead, talk about wisdom as no as being able to do the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll notice that there's not there's nothing terribly specific about that. You know, not really. what does that mean? What's the right thing? What's the right way? And and I think Aristotle's idea was what what some people have called the priority of the particular. In human right. affairs, in practical human affairs, which is why he called this practical wisdom, in practical human affairs, every situation is different. People are different. Their needs are different. The circumstances are different. If you're a doctor, every patient presents his or her own challenge when it comes to not only the medical examination, but talking to the patient about what's wrong and what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so a wise doctor is someone who reads each patient and figures out what needs to be said, how it needs to be said, so that you can pursue the goal of uh, curing disease uh, and easing suffering and preventing disease. For me, that's what practical wisdom is, wanting to do the right thing and then having the flexibility to determine what that means in each situation you encounter. And probably to switch then the strategy depending on how the situation evolves or whom you Absolutely. encounter, whom you're dealing with. There's a wonderful, that's really interesting. There's a wonderful mm-hmm. article that a, an oncologist at Harvard named Jerome Groupman wrote some years ago in the New Yorker magazine called Dying Words. And it's about how doctors, how doctors tell patients that they're going to die. Hmm. And he, he took as a case to illustrate this a 25-year-old woman who had metastatic breast, breast cancer and was cer- almost certainly going to be dead within a couple of years. And as he describes the conversation, you can see that really it's a kind of a dance. He's trying to figure out how direct to be. 
how kind to be, which questions to ask, which questions to answer, how to answer them based on her facial expression, the way in which she's responding to what she's already being told, you know, and it's an incredibly subtle interaction. And he talks about how doctors get no training, whatever, in this. And nor do they ever watch other doctors doing it because these are conversations that happen behind closed doors. And he talks about how awful he was when he first started practicing. He was just a blunderbuss. And slowly over the years, as he learned from the crushing mistakes that he made, he got better and better at reading the situation. So he's now wise when it comes to having these conversations. But it's the, this wisdom is the product of a lot of damaged lives and very big mistakes. But the notion that there's a formula for giving people bad news is just, again, it, it protects against catastrophe yeah. and it guarantees mediocrity. I think in um, Practical Wisdom, the book, you were talking about proverbs. You know, often when people talk about wisdom, yes. they talk about proverbs. And from what you were saying, there's um, a problem buried into the very concept of a proverb. It's like, this is always the case. Like, honesty is the best policy. And it, so people can just sort of throw that around. But honesty is not always the best policy. And there's another another proverb that will sort of alert you to the situations when honesty is not the best policy. So exactly kind of so. describing wisdom as this kind of the art of working out which of those ideas to land on, depending on the feedback you're getting from the situation. That's right. And Aristotle was famously what's called a virtue theorist. So, mm -hmm. you know, his view is that the, the secret to moral conduct is the cultivation of character. And he had a long list of virtues. And most of them we would regard as virtues even today, although probably in some cases that we think of them as less important than he did, and that we'd have other virtues that we added. But this is in contrast to a theory that basically says that the way, you know, the, the secret to morality is to develop rules, good rules, and then follow them. Hmm. Like the greatest mm -hmm. good for the greatest number, or always be honest, or something like that. And for Aristotle, the master virtue, the virtue that was, that ruled all the others, was wisdom. And it was precisely because without wisdom, you wouldn't know when and how to deploy the other virtues that you. Mm -hmm that you had, you know, he talked about courage as the kind of middle ground between recklessness and cowardice. Now, how do you figure out what that middle ground is? And the answer right. is, if you're, if you're wise, you can find the middle ground. And if you're not wise, then, you know, you will either retreat from fights that you should be uh, participating in or sacrifice your troops needlessly in fights that can't be won. So, and we simply try to translate Aristotle's framework into the 21st century. So I have a specific question about that because I think this will be very interesting again to our audience. In psychology, over the course of the 20th century, as well as in philosophy, Aristotle kind of went in the, the background. Uh, in philosophy, there was a revival with Alistair, Alistair McIntyre. Yes. Uh, but in psychology, we almost forgot about Aristotelian ideas. Now, you sort of, uh, and I, I consider you to be the person who tries to bring Aristotelian ideas back. So why Aristotle and not some of the other philosophical traditions that seem to be so popular in psychology now, like the this distinction between deontological utilitarian judgments, the, the Kantian ideas, the human ideas, uh, Mill's ideas. Why Aristotle? Well, I think it's a, it, what it reflects is real skepticism. All of those, all of the other approaches that you mentioned, 
strike me as essentially rule-based. Right. And I think that the nature of human life and human interaction and the actual problems that people face in negotiating their ordinary day-to-day lives are not amenable to solution by the application of rules. I think rules get the way I talk about it is that rules are like a roadmap that gets you to the right city, but not the right street. You know, you'll never mm-hmm. find the street I live on unless you can get to Oakland, California. But getting to Oakland, California isn't enough to get you to my street. And so rules get you to Oakland, but then something else is required to get you to my street. You know, it's a kind of the last mile in making making moral decisions about how to treat other people. But that it's, takes it's an judgment. important mile, isn't it? The last one. It is. It's. It's. You know. It's. The, it's a crucial mile. I don't want to say it's more important than the others because yeah. you you don't get to Oakland, you'll never get here. Yeah. But but getting to Oakland isn't good enough. And all of the mm-hmm. alternative approaches that I'm aware of, that I've studied at all, think that there, somewhere there exists the right set of rules that if only people would follow them they would unerringly be making good moral decisions and we would be living in a harmonious social world. And Aristotle and virtue theorists stand apart collectively from, at least in my mind, from all of the alternatives. And I think there's a reason that um, mm-hmm. virtue theory has, uh, has not been terribly popular in the social sciences and psychology. And that is, notice what I said Wisdom is doing the right thing in the right way uh, at the right time for the right reason. Those are evaluative comments. What's the right thing? Yeah. And we have struggled so hard to be, quote, value-free science that we are reluctant to make a claim about what's the right thing. And the thing about these rule-based systems is that you can plug in whatever values society has into the rules a system of rules and then derive mm-hmm. from that what the appropriate conduct is so we can be objective and not impose our values on the people we're studying with a rule-based system in a way that I think you can't if you if you have a virtue-based system so there's a kind of failure of nerve on the part of social sciences to articulate and defend a particular set of values but it seems to me that the meta virtue that practical wisdom appears to represent could be potentially reconceptualized as a set of if then rules, as sometimes is done in social and personality psychology. Mm-hmm. So if you are in this situation, then you do this. If you are in that situation, then you do something else. It's just very hard to know what are, uh, how to obtain that knowledge and uh, what those situations are and how to discern uh, whether it's that situation which you have to apply rule X versus rule Y. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes really complicated, but it's, it's not impossible, I would say, with advances in uh, computational uh, technology uh, well, maybe, to develop you know, that. You know, you could imagine that, um, you know, you have a kind of uh, moral network that right. reflects some sort of deep learning algorithms and that kicks out answers to moral questions. But, you know, the thing is, at least from my limited understanding of these deep learning algorithms, if you ask the people who create them what the basis was for the decision, they can't tell you. Yeah, because All that's that, not what they're interested in. Yeah, they're interested it's not in what, well, but it's, yeah. They're interested in solutions, but it's not clear that that's the only reason they can't tell you. There's a sense in which there are so many unknowns in the computational right. architecture that even if they did care, 
they wouldn't be able to tell you because the, the computation is so complex. Uh, you know, the reason you feed them 10 million data points into the program is so that the program can figure out what to do. If you could tell the program what to do, you wouldn't need to give it all those data. So I think maybe in a way what you're doing in creating these learning algorithms is you are <laughs> simulating wise human judgment. You're trying to approximate the mind, yes. And I think that's fine. But the idea that because we can build a computer program whose working we don't really fully understand means that we can be value-free and scientifically rigorous uh, seems to me overly optimistic about what, you know, I think these, these algorithms have enormous practical value, but I don't think they solve the conceptual problem that you can't articulate these rules. And you're right, you can have if-then rules. In situations like, the, if the situation is like this, do that. And now the question is, what does it mean to say the situation is like this? How similar does this situation have to be to the ones you're referring to in order for you to follow the rule? Do you not need, if you're developing a computer to, to program to work out what should be done, do you not need to tell the computer, you know, what should be done in terms of what? You know, don't you have to say, optimize for this specific value or this specific good? You know, you have to say, look... You're much better at processing complexity than I am. I understand that. But the computer doesn't know what to optimize for unless you tell it, I would have thought. So mm -hmm. I would have thought you're feeding, you're just kind of putting into it your value system. So you still need to tell it what good looks like. Well, I think that's probably true. So you'd have to, if you're trying to come up with social policies concerned with, say, health and safety, you'd need to assign some value to a life And you'd need to have a metric unless you simply categorically insist that all lives have equal value. And then, yes, the computer would calculate what policy or what behavior is the one that would maximize returns to human life. If you think not uh, that, all, uh, that lives don't have equal value, for example, young lives are of more value than older lives, then you'd need to somehow specify that as well. Mm. Uh, for the program. I don't see, think the program would discover that on its own. Yeah, that kind of is interesting, bringing it back to wisdom, you know, this this idea of it does rest on a value system. And, that, and you were saying that was perhaps one of the reasons why people had been lost their nerve in terms of um, proposing it as a, as a sort of framework for making decisions. How do you get around that when people don't necessarily agree? We have quite different value systems uh, in the 21st century. Well, How that's a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, Aristotle had it easy. Uh, <laughs> he had one city to worry about. He only had one city to worry about. You know, I don't know if a third of the people living there didn't count. Yeah, so, because they were slaves. Yeah, because they were slaves, and the women probably didn't count for much either. No, so you know, he was trying to. He was saying, "Listen, use your judgment to a collection of people who are essentially identical to one another." Right. One of the attractions to rules is that. You can't tell people to use their judgment in a heterogeneous world like the one we live in. You know, whose judgment do I want to trust in modern America? Do I want to trust the president's judgment at the moment? I think not. Mm. And so you've got highly diverse people with different values, different assessments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it seems really attractive in a world like that to come up with a set of rules that everyone can live with, uh, even if they produce mediocre results. Because, indeed, in a heterogeneous world, the alternative is could be catastrophe. So, I, I, you know, despite the fact that I think following rules is really limited in, and limits us in what we can do, 
I also think that in the world we live in, the alter- there may not be an alternative. So whenever uh, I encounter this type of situation, when I'm asked, how do you deal with this, uh, with different norms and value systems, I often refer people to uh, the global institutions that we have and a certain UN charter, for instance, uh, about certain principles that are set up uh, by representatives from different countries. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, of course, has limitations. What's your take on this approach? Oh, I I like this approach. You know, I think it's not because you're trying to get agreement among very diverse entities who surely assign different values to things. It ends up being a little thin as a guide to everyday life. Um, It's a compromise. It's a com- it's never, a compromise, no, and it's not super. It's not detailed enough, you know. It's uh, yeah. on the other hand, the U- Universal Declaration of Human Rights says a lot more about what we owe people in a society than anything in U.S. government document says. <laughs> so right. you know, even though it ha- was forced to compromise to come up with compromises on highly di- from highly diverse sources. It did a pretty damn good job. It just didn't get specific enough. How do you translate, you know, freedom from want, freedom from fear, freedom from persecution into the actual practices of your society? That's challenging. It's a pretty good place to start. I agree with you. And it does suggest that some agreement is possible even in heterogeneous contexts. Although I wonder, do you think if the UN started now, it would be able to come up with any principles that everyone would agree to? There's probably a narrow window we had there. It's good that we took advantage of it. We had a narrow window, and look, you know, yeah. there was one, you know, there was one country carrying a very big stick yeah. and pushing yeah. other countries around. Yeah, those days are gone. Well, there was also a, a, an attempt to uh, overcome the uh, n- never to have the same type of experiences as some of the people had in the Second World War. They often forget. I think they currently we just forget about that. Yep. Because we're going to we're sort of navigate or working our way towards wisdom at work. I wanted to talk a little bit about work now. So we've spoken, kind of got a bit of a landscape around wisdom. So I was really interested in this idea of yours, Barry, about idea technology. And mm-hmm. I hadn't come across this before, but, you know, if you just think about work, you just think well, so there's something natural about humans and they gather in these places where they work and they have certain attitudes towards work and that's sort of fairly consistent. But I think what you were saying is that actually it's quite fluid and we have different ideas about people and their relationship with work at different points in our history. And that can have sort of quite serious consequences for how we structure our workplaces. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So what I, what I was trying to um, suggest in the, in the book I wrote called Why We Work is that owing to a large degree to the influence of Adam Smith, we essentially adopted the view that work is pure disutility, that if given a choice, people would not work. They work to get paid. The only thing that matters about their work is the paycheck. So if you get the pay right, nothing else matters. And you can organize work in whatever way you like, say, to maximize efficiency or maximize profitability or maximize interchangeability of individual workers, because none of that's going to make work better or worse for people. And as long as you pay them, 
as I said, nothing else matters. So that ideology, I think, dominated the shape of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century, early late 19th century, there was a movement called the Scientific Management Movement that really tried to mm-hmm. implement these ideas uh, at the most molecular imaginable level, you know, watching how people move their bodies and oh, doing yeah. time and motion studies yeah. to make people as efficient as machines. And built into all of that right. is the idea that it's all about the paycheck. So the question is, is this true? And the answer, I suggest, is it depends, which is not a terribly <laughs> satisfying answer, <laughs> especially if you're trying to come up with scientific principles. The, the idea behind idea technology is that this idea from Adam Smith became a significant causal agent in the evolution of social institutions, especially institutions around work. And so if -hmm. the work people face is, you know, assembly line factory work where people do the same thing over and over and over again, hour after hour, day after day, then Smith is right. Why would anyone do that kind of work except for a paycheck? But why is the work that way? Well, one reason the work is that way is that Smith told us that people don't care what work they do as long as they get paid. And so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like this old idea of self-fulfilling prophecy, mm-hmm. except that right. I'm not I'm not suggesting that because people believe that work is all about the paycheck, they act that way. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that because people believe that work is all about the paycheck, they create workplaces in which work is all about the paycheck because any other reason people might have for showing up has been eliminated. It's not just that believing makes it so. It's that believing makes it so because believing has a big influence on the shape of the institutions people have to work within. Right. And that's what I call uh, idea technology. Smith's ideas created a technology that led to the shape of um, industrial production. Uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. So this can be linked to some extent to what we talked about earlier when you said that uh, some of the philosophers that are popular in psychology and social sciences in general, in economics, are the philosophers who have this kind of more formal tradition. And I think Sig Smith is a prototypical example of that, where you have a very sort of formal uh, vision uh, of what what people appreciate, what uh, their judgment should be oriented towards to. But I I wonder, uh, Barry, do you think people are capable of both caring about virtues and caring about this type of, like, lay people, like just us? If you ask somebody on the street, um, do you think they they have both systems where they, on the one hand, care about this uh, formal, simple, monetary rewards-oriented behavior, and at the same time, more about this meaning-focused behavior uh, that you're proposing here? So I think the answer to that is probably yes, but there, as I'm sure you know, there's this research that suggests that these motivational systems interact and sometimes right. compete, and so you can, as it were, turn play into work. You know, we were talking about this earlier when we were talking about feed, when once feedback stops simply being informative, but also hedonic, and you're trying to work to get approval or work to get mm. a raise, it, it can change what you do and make the meaning driver of mm. your work less and less significant and maybe less and less available. So yes, right. in principle, you ought to be able to make a living, make a good living, and also say in complete honesty that you do the work you do because of its meaningfulness. Right. And it just you just need to be, I think, careful 
if you're organizing work about how you use or if you use incentives. I mean, I think incentives are just a terrible idea. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the way workplaces should be organized is that if the company's doing well, everyone benefits. Mm -hmm. And if it's doing badly, everyone suffers. And if somebody is unable to do the job, then you just let that person go. But you don't punish them with no raise or a low raise, and you don't reward other people with a high raise. This is a communal enterprise. We're all trying to achieve something working in this company, and we should succeed or fail together. There are very few companies that operate this way. That, that fact, feels like a, yeah, a fundamentally, it feels against the sort of experiment that we've, we're having with individualism. Like the idea that yeah. my reward sounds very socialist. But I mean, I, I, I like yeah. it. I like the idea. I'm just, po- I'm yeah, just, pointing, out, I'm just pointing out yeah, no, yeah, that a lot I, of people I, would kind here, of yeah. like go, whoa, look, I'm doing my job well. Why? Because, you know, this guy can't get in on time. Why do I have to suffer? Yeah. It's a difficult thing for people to get their heads around, I think. I think it is, in, as particularly in the West. I have a yeah. feeling it's not quite so difficult in other cultures uh, where there is a more of a collective uh, mm. sense of a collective project around uh, many of the things that people do mm. but it's it's antithetical to the way people in the west think and and it's not without problems you know there will be free riders you'll have people taking advantage of That's this right. kind of approach it's just that it always struck me that um it's okay to have a few people take advantage of a system like this because of the benefits that a system right. like this provides. And if you do stand on your head to make sure that no one can exploit the system, you will effectively make everybody worse off. You know, it's interesting because um, that term mm-hmm. free rider, obviously, you know, when, whenever we use that, we're, we're thinking of someone else being the free rider. <laughs> um, but it, it just occurred to me that the, what's the word, the security that comes with knowing that, Say I'm teaching a class that, you know, say, you know, say you always had high levels of students in your class, but say uh, one year, you know, you're getting fewer students and you know that it's not going to affect your pay. You know, if you're lazy, obviously that's bad, but it's also quite, it provides security to sort of weather the, these sort of vicissitudes that might happen mm-hmm. to, to everyone in the company. So, um, yeah, sure, some people might uh, free ride, but also... It means that if you personally are going through a tough time or you're in a, you know, whatever difficult spot, you're not going to get penalized. And that must sort of create a huge sense of security for people. Yeah, and it does more than that. You know, again, in the teaching world, uh, there are some courses that are just less popular than others. Right. Uh, you know, I, I haven't met an undergraduate who looks forward to taking a course on research methods. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, the point is that you want to teach that course. And you want right. it to be taught rigorously. You don't want it to turn into a, you know, like a party. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to have people who are willing to sacrifice their popularity to serve the greater good of, uh, you know, providing a proper education to all the students. Not everyone gets to teach abnormal psychology or the psychology of uh, human sexuality or, you know, even the introductory course. Some people teach the course that nobody wants to take because it has to be taught. And they have a measure of security and respect from their colleagues because they know that from their colleagues' point of view, everyone is part of a common project. And the question is, how is the project succeeding overall? even though each of us has a different role to play. That strikes me as the right Mm. 
way to organize things. And yes, that doesn't mean that there won't sometimes be people whose classes are small because they're really not doing a very good job. Mm. But that's not the only reason your class will be small. So, but here's an interesting pickle, I think. You're talking about a system in which everybody kind of buys into the common ethos. But imagine Correct. that somebody uh, just comes in and they, they didn't quite understand it, either because maybe they're not smart enough and or they derive their sense of meaning from something entirely different. For that person, if he or she is in that system, it does become more of a social incentive type of situation, right? Where they're thinking, well, all these other people really care about it, so I better don't bring up the topic uh, that I better behave according to the common standard. So even though I don't really care about it to the same extent as they do, mm. I will behave uh, at least in public. And in the same way. Right. So it takes a certain amount of courage. You may subscribe to this common standard of um, aspiring to educate and excite young minds, but you may think that the way your colleagues are doing it is wrongheaded. Right. Uh, and so then the question is, do you go along to get along or do you articulate your alternative? And in that way, try to redirect the enterprise. When McIntyre in his book After Virtue talks about practices and asks, you know, who is to judge what's good art? His answer, which is quite elitist, is that artists judge what good art is. And you're perfectly free to say, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. But you're not free to expect an artist to care what you like, mm. because right. they care about art and they care about moving it forward. And there will be disagreements about what constitutes moving art forward in the same way there are disagreements about what constitutes moving psychology forward. I wanted to um, ask one final question on this because we're going to go into sort of – we're going to bring wisdom and work together any moment now. We've sort of put all the pieces in place. <laughs> uh, it's like a big game of chess. The last thing just on work is what are the common non-material benefits that people – typically cite that they get from work? What are people getting from going to work every day that isn't just money? Well, I think the list that I generated, and it's not exhaustive by any means, I think people want a fi some autonomy and control. They want to be respected. They want to work with colleagues that they enjoy, who they enjoy interacting with. And most important, they want to feel that what they do in some way make somebody else's life better. And that's just one sense of meaning. It's not the only sense of meaning, but I think it's the one that is most dominant in people's minds. How have I improved people's lives today yeah. in some small way? And I think all of those things matter enormously. And they all, they all matter. You know, you can be doing stuff that improves people's lives, but basically working on an assembly line with somebody looking over your shoulder every minute, and it's going to be hard for you to sustain commitment to that activity mm. when you're treated in that way. Mm. On the other hand, you can have freedom and flexibility to do something completely trivial. And I think it's hard to sustain your interest and commitment that way. So those are, to me, the key ingredients of work that people want to do. And I think most jobs could be structured to have most of those elements most of the time. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of one thing that occurs to me is that I, I can think of jobs that i i would find it hard to see how you could deliver those those things what do we do about these other kind of jobs that you know it's hard to give to bring a sense that you did something good for someone else today well i just think there are fewer of those jobs than than you than you might think you know i right. think people who work in retail a lot of people mm -hmm. are selling things to people 
and they think their job is to sell as much stuff as they can. But one could view your a job in retail as solving people's problems. People come into the store, they have a problem. Otherwise, they wouldn't come in. Can I, can I help them solve their problem? Can I find the thing that will solve their problem? Or can I convince them that they don't need the thing to solve their problem? And all of a sudden, you think about your work as you know, solving 100 people's problems every day. Mm. And that's a lot more, it seems to me, meaningful than how much crap can I unload. <laughs> Are you suggesting then that the individuals themselves have quite a large role to play in changing their relationship with work? Or is it more structural or is it both? I think it's both. Right. You know, my, my colleague and collaborator, Amy Rezniski, has done, she, she's at Yale, and she's done work on what she calls job crafting, which is to a large degree how people can think differently about the work they do. And I think there's a lot there, but I also think that if you're a salesperson with a quota or else you lose your job, then you can't necessarily afford the luxury of treating your job as, as a problem solver. So you need the right kind of benign neglect by the people who supervise you <laughs> uh, to, uh, to reinterpret your work. And some workplaces have that and some don't. So I think it's a mix. Really interesting. Okay, so let me dive in into this one uh, final block that we uh, prepared for today, and this is integrating uh, the considerations about the workplaces and wisdom. And I'll start with the most critical question, I think. Now, Barry, this is not a TED talk, so you're not an, uh, in front of executives. So I appreciate the honest answer to this question. Do you think employers actually want the employees to develop wisdom? <sighs> Some do. Enlightened ones do. Yeah. And the, the reason I say that is that the evidence that I've been able to gather suggests that the most productive workplaces are the ones where people are most engaged by their work. So even if you don't care about the welfare of your employees and only care about the bottom line, you're going to want to create a workplace where people want to be and work tasks that people want to do. Enlightened employers know this. Less enlightened employers either don't know it or are unwilling to relinquish control to the right. work, workforce. And I think it's probably a mixture of both. So I don't think most employers care all that much about the welfare of their employees, except as it relates to the Perfect. success of the company. But it does relate to the success of the company. Turnover is a catastrophe for employers. The, you know, the amount right. of time and money it costs to train replacements is substantial. How do we keep people here? Uh, well, we have to, you know, not simply by paying them more. We have to make it a place they want to be and a set of tasks they want to do. And I think, as I said, enlightened employers know this. And there's been much more attention paid to the quality of work in recent years than, um, than in mm -hmm. other, other eras. But, you know, I say this with a, with a qualification. I think Amazon probably cares a lot about their highly skilled at headquarters workers and probably hardly at all about the people who work in their fulfillment centers, you know? Right. So the cream of Amazon's God knows how many thousand workforce gets work that's meaningful and engaging, and the majority of the workforce doesn't. And because they're so physically segregated, you know, the bad, the bad atmosphere in the fulfillment centers probably doesn't leak into the atmosphere 
where the intellectual work is being done. I suppose so, if you, yeah, I was just thinking from um, a CEO's perspective, their turnover in the uh, fulfillment uh, center will be much cheaper, right? It doesn't. It yes. doesn't. It's not a big deal to get someone in to train them to to do a simple task like that. Whereas to get a new, you know, high powered executive in, that kind of turnover is very expensive. So, I suppose that mechanism is at play. No doubt it is, and if you know, if they have their if they have their way, people will be less and less relevant to how fulfillment right. centers operate. You know, the way to the way to engineer high quality productive work is to engineer the people out of it, mm. and that will create another problem. Obviously, yeah, it's interesting. Like yesterday, uh, the news that uh, that came out about Google having about half of the employees being just part time or contractors, and that the uh, access to resources to some extent, some of the um, um, different uh, type of activities or all sorts of uh, additional perks that the Google employees normally get, the uh, contractors and the part-time employees of whom there are about half don't actually get. Um, and so then the question is like, well, Google is one of those companies that until recently claimed to not do evil. I mean, they got rid of that. Yes in there um, uh, much recently. Slogan, is, it, is it like yeah. do evil or <laughs> what have they changed? Uh, well, it's just like be silent. Right. Don't, uh, don't silent. get caught. Yeah. Don't, don't get caught. I think that's a moral <laughs> slogan. You, you'll notice how short of the mark don't be evil is. The only reason that has any, any hold on us at all, I would say, is that so many big companies have been positively and unequivocally evil. Mm. So, so yeah. simply not doing any harm seems like a huge a, leap forward. Seems like a huge leap forward. Exactly. Yeah. So. That's right. So the question then becomes: so if there if there are some companies uh, where uh, more enlightened employers care about uh, the uh, cultivation of wisdom of the employees. What can be done? Uh, from your perspective, Barry, you uh, talked about it, you've written about this. What is the path to wisdom in the work setting? The path to wisdom, and from my point of view, is to create an atmosphere of trust and mutual respect uh, in the workforce, hire good people, and then let them do their work as they see fit with feedback, with oversight, but without without breathing down their necks. Um, Somebody who teaches uh, organizational behavior at Stanford, uh, Jeff Pfeffer is his name, and in one of his books, he has he has this remarkably insightful single sentence. He says, "You should hire for traits you don't know how to train, and then train the the the, the traits you do know how to train." This is very counterintuitive until you think about it for a moment. You know, so you hire a good person who doesn't know how to do Excel. And then you teach them how to do Excel Mm. instead of hiring somebody who knows how to do Excel and hoping he's a good person. We don't know. Yeah, cross your fingers and hope you could teach them to be good. We don't know how to teach people to be good. We've been Mm. trying that for thousands of years. We do know how to teach people to do Excel. The problem is if you hire a good person who doesn't have skills, this person will contribute nothing in the short run. So that's interesting. Uh, so you suggest then that we should hire people who are wise and teach them other stuff because wisdom is probably harder uh, if you don't know, if the employer doesn't know how to teach wisdom. Or, tr- or hire people who have the character traits that right. wisdom requires because you're, mm-hmm. you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be wise in the tasks that you're going to face on the job until you've had experience on the job. Yeah. But you can be a good person. 
an honorable person, a person with integrity, a person who tells the truth, a person who's committed to the enterprise, and then slowly Mm -hmm. develop the wisdom as you're doing the job about how to do it as effectively as possible. But we don't know how to teach people any of those character traits particularly well. So yeah, hire, you know, it's, it's not always easy to tell who's got, who's got them and who doesn't. But right. if, you, if you know you've got somebody of high character, don't worry about the lack of skill because you can teach that. As long um, as you can teach that, yeah. As long as you can teach it. So that's the argument. The argument is, is again, hire what you don't know how to teach yeah. and then teach what you do know how to teach. Can you visualize what that job interview would look like? It's just it's an interesting... <laughs> You know, well, I can't because I love the idea of it. I'm just thinking, what you got half an hour? Half an I hour, haven't so. thought. I really haven't thought about that. How yeah. you would try to figure out? And, and you know, I mean, there's another problem, of course, which is how much can you figure out about anything in a job interview? So that's you know, right. To some degree, you know, you've got all this data from the person's past. That's probably a more a better predictor of what this person's like than what you're going to glean from your half hour with. Uh, but then again, the question is, which things from the person's past are the most diagnostic of uh, yeah. the character that you care about? I don't know. You know, it, if you if you agreed with um, with him that this is a sensible way to make personnel decisions, uh, you know, there would develop tools for assessing character that are probably better than the ones we have now. Yeah. So here's one final question to you, Barry. So like, uh, uh, probably a lot of our listeners also wondering, well, I may not necessarily work in a corporation. I may be a freelancer uh, or I work a lot at home in my home office. How would this insights apply, uh, insights about the wisdom development in this modern or postmodern society of freelancers, home office workers, startup developers, and so on? I think that's really a challenge. Uh, I don't think there's a formulaic answer to this. But as a freelancer, you're a gun for hire. And what that means is that you you don't commit to the culture or the telos of the people that hire you. You, You're there to do a specific job, and then you go and take your skill to some other place. So how do people who do this kind of work find meaning in the work they do? I don't know the answer to that. It's conceivable that if you sign on to do a freelance job for a company whose purposes you respect, you'll get some, you know, sort of reflected glory and satisfaction in knowing that you contributed to something that you value. It's just, uh, I think that that whole situation is so dynamic at the moment that I hesitate to predict whether people will ultimately, freelancers who presumably value the freedom that it gives them. Right will ultimately find out that, you know, you pay a price for that kind of freedom and maybe it's a price that's not worth paying. So it's like a question for future generation of philosophers, psychologists. And also people change, you know, so I would would find this freelancing thing abhorrent. I stayed (laughs) at my employer for 45 years, you know, I'm the opposite of a freelancer, but you know, that's right. I'm 70 years old. Uh, 25-year-olds may have an entirely different view about what's, what makes life worth living, and they may find it not a, no problem at all. It is interesting. I think like in the conversation recently around freelancing has, um, over here anyway, been that it's a bit of um, been sold a bit of a lie. Like It looks quite cool and sexy and fun, but actually it's just sort of another way of saying no security, no benefits, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no nothing. Right. Um, you know, so I think people are twigging onto that. 
I think that's right. Uh, you know, I know both my son-in-law and my daughter worked for a while as contractors for Microsoft back in the day. Right. And it was just Microsoft's way of not having to, you know, pay benefits or have any long-term commitment mm-hmm. to employees. They were eventually both hired by Microsoft. But in the early days, you know, they were very well compensated, but they were basically, you know, uh, guns for hire. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't know that they would have put up with it indefinitely, even though they were well compensated. Okay, so I think we uh, got uh, to the end of our very illuminating discussion. Uh, Barry, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This was wonderful. We learned so much. Charles was particularly excited. Uh, I think he, uh, for, for him, you were the star uh, <laughs> of, of the whole Wisdom Field. So he, he, was get, he was actually getting nervous. He didn't show that uh, during Should the podcast. Eagle, you said you would keep nervous. that between you and me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've really enjoyed it, Barry. It was great honor and love well i did too i was thank you very much i'm touched and very glad you (laughs) thank you i feel the same way it was a pleasure to be with you all right and now a little summary of the show today with barry and charles we talked about wisdom at work starting with the idea going all the way back to the ancient greece and the writings of aristotle the idea that wisdom may be represented as a master virtue that helps to balance different other virtues instead of uh, just doing one thing, being brave, or being courageous, or uh, showing self-restraint. Wisdom helps to figure out under what circumstances does one particular characteristic fits a particular situation. In this sense, the Aristotelian perspective on wisdom that uh, we discussed with Barry stands apart from the other perspectives on morality, whereas those perspectives emphasize rule-based uh, frameworks. Uh, where uh, you would follow certain rules to figure out the moral principles, the virtue ethics emphasized by Aristotle takes a position of deep skepticism, where we try to figure out what to do based on the overarching virtues and other principles. We also talked about the problem of agreement, of what the right thing to do may be, especially when we compare the heterogeneous, ethnically and sociopolitically diverse societies we live in today as compared to the rather monolithic uh, society in ancient Greece. And finally, we talked about the idea technology, another perspective that goes back to Aristotle, in which our thoughts may be shaping our workplace, and instead of just being driven by some economic or social incentives, we may be driven by the way how we find fulfillment in work and how that in turn may shape how we work. Towards the end, we talked about benefits and disadvantages of this approach. Uh, Sometimes it can lead to free riders, but at the same time, it can also lead to greatness. This is all we had for today. If you uh, like this episode or if you like this show, please continue rating us on iTunes and other platforms. This is all for today. Until the next time.